Most of us can probably think of a movie where a character is about to escape some dangerous situation, but with almost no time to spare, they decide they have to go and settle one last score, right? If it's the villain, that leads to his death, of course. If it's the hero, it gives them one more chance to do something heroic before getting away just in time. Now, in those scenes, the characters make the choice because they feel like they must do it, right? They've got to sort that last thing out, something that's been left unfinished. It's a matter of honor and duty and passion. We see something a little bit like that in our text this evening. Paul is hurrying out of the Gentile world, we're told. He's trying to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. But before the ship pulls out into the Mediterranean, he decides he's got to take care of something. And what follows is a very tender meeting between him and some of his friends from the city of Ephesus. We recall that he spent a few years in Ephesus and developed some really close relationships there. As they talk, it's clear that Paul felt it was his duty to give them this farewell. He testifies that he had, as he served them and ministered there in their city, he says that he faithfully carried out his duty toward them, and then he charges them with duties of their own. Though this is a meeting of pastors, there's still a lot for all of us to learn in this tearful goodbye. And so we're going to begin in verse 16. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. It's unusual for Paul to avoid something, right? We sometimes see him willing to go and talk to violent mobs, and people have to restrain him from doing that. Sometimes he's willing to be illegally beaten. I mean, so he doesn't really avoid a lot of things. So why was he hoping to bypass the province of Asia and specifically the city of Ephesus? Well, we're told he wanted to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. Now, scholars calculate that he'd have about 30 days maybe to get there. And that's not a lot of time when it comes to first century travel across the empire. It's always an amazing thing that now if you really wanted to, you could be on another continent in about 10 hours, right? And certainly if we, if we were a little bit closer to San Francisco or LAX, you know, you know, in eight hours you could be in South America. But that's an amazing thing. But 30 days was not a whole lot of time for this trip. Throughout this section, we see Paul making decisions. He decided to go back through Macedonia, we were told earlier in the chapter. He decided to walk rather than sail to Asos. He's deciding to sail past Ephesus. Luke keeps using this word. Now, your life is full of decisions. Some of them are more trivial, and some of them are more monumental. Uh, But we don't always know where that line is, right? We can't always tell which decisions will become a little bit more monumental and which are a little bit more trivial. Not always. So what should we do? On the one hand, we don't want to live in such a way that we become paralyzed. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you don't need to pray for an hour before deciding what socks to put on tomorrow, right? That's a decision you're going to make, but it's one that's probably not going to have monumental consequences for your regular life, for your spiritual life, for your vocational life. But at the same time, we want to not swing to the other side and live a life that neglects to include God in all our decision-making. Right, we laugh when we talk about, uh, I have to be an hour in prayer before I put my socks on. We laugh because that's silly. 
It's equally silly as Christians to say, well, you know, I'm making job decisions, life decisions, where I live, you know, who I'm with, and I don't really include the Lord in these large life decisions that shape the course of my life, right? God has an opinion on where you live, where you go to college, where you work, how you fill your days. More than an opinion, our Lord has intentions and commands for us to follow as individuals. Now, how do we know them and how do we follow them? That's the question. The believers in Acts did it by being spirit-filled. We're watching them do it page after page, section after section. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 7. He said, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Now, Jesus told us that the Holy Spirit is our helper who will teach us all things and guide us in all truth, right? So we are shown the way, we're, we're explicitly told how we are to do the things that God wants us to do and how to make life decisions that conform to what God wants for us. Jesus said, I, not only do, am I commanding you to do this, I am giving you what you need so that you can know it and then do it. And one of those, obviously, is the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells us as Christians. He's our helper. We're told he teaches us. He guides us in truth. And alongside the Holy Spirit, we have the scriptures, which were inspired by the Holy Spirit, given as a guide for how to live a godly life. They contain all that is necessary for life and godliness, right? So with these precious gifts, we can make decisions that keep us in line with God's will and put us in a position to be used for God's glory. That's how Paul was making these choices. He's conforming his life to the word of God, and he is spirit-filled. And so he is able to make all of these decisions in a way that honors God and navigates him through where he needs to go and when he needs to go. Verse 17 says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. The ship must have had a layover. So Paul squeezed out this one last mission before they left port. It was about 30 miles from city to city. I've never had to walk to the Fresno airport. That's about how far it would be as the crow flies, right? Um, I'm not walking to the Fresno airport. Um, but after receiving this sudden summons, I mean, he would have sent a messenger and said, hey, you gotta come, you gotta come like right now. And the dudes came, they came straight away. Now, why is only Ephesus represented? Surely, I mean, if you look, if you, if you have an analog Bible and you're looking at Paul's missionary journeys map in the back of it, you'll see there's like all kinds of little cities around there. And Paul had spent time ministering in this region. There were other congregations, other churches. You'll even see the seven churches of Asia. I mean, they're, you're right in the thick of it right there. So why not these other elders from Smyrna or some of these other places, just Ephesus? Well, God had placed an urgent message on Paul's heart for this group. In fact, he had put a prophecy on Paul's heart that he was going to deliver to them as a warning and as a preparation for what was coming ahead for them. Verse 18 says, When they came to him, he said to them, You know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul will find is convinced that he's never going to see these people again, though he would write to them the letter that you have in your Bibles after this encounter. So he writes the letter to the Ephesians after this encounter, but he's convinced that he's never going to see any of them again. And even though he could write, I mean, he, he thought, you know, obviously he could always write a letter, 
there was a pressing need in his heart for, him, for them to have this talk together. Now, we don't know exactly how the Lord spoke to him or, 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 or what impelled him to, to bring this all together, but there was something that he said, okay, we, we have to have a face-to-face. It's gonna be really tight, but let's, let's get them here so that I can deliver this, this message to them personally. God will sometimes set time-sensitive duties and opportunities before us. We think of the owners of the upper room in which Jesus had his last supper with the disciples, right? Remember, he sends two of his disciples. He says, go inquire and say, where's the room that you've prepared for us, right? And they, will, they found that it was prepared for them. God had led these nameless guys in the gospels to make that room ready. And it was in a specific window of time. It actually it needed to happen on a particular evening, right? There are lots of other opportunities that are sort of open-ended. Quite some time ago in our study of, studies of Acts, I used that story of, if you've heard of um, uh, the, the, the Christian named Brother Yoon, missionary and author, and he talks about how he was first becoming a Christian and how he was so desperate for a Bible. And he ended up doing some like crazy fast, asking God for a Bible for a really long extended period of time. And finally, a guy comes to his door and says, God told me to give you this Bible like 90 days ago, and I've been afraid to do it because they lived in communist China, right? So that window was very wide and was kind of like, hey, you know, we're, we're going to wait until you bring him the Bible. But if those guys had said, I didn't get the upper room ready, that window passes. So sometimes God puts time-sensitive duties before us, and and. We need to act on that if the Spirit is leading. We need to be sensitive to that. As soon as Paul finishes with these guys, they walk him onto the boat in the, in the story, right? We can almost sort of see the crew loading cargo and drawing up the gangways as this little group of Christians is huddling together. But this was a needful meeting, and so it's good that everyone acted um, uh, promptly. Uh, Paul didn't hesitate that they didn't hesitate. As Paul begins, we see him being very personal, very genuine. It's hard to get a clear picture on what Paul was like when you interacted with him personally. We don't have his nickname. A lot of the guys in the, in the New Testament, we have their nicknames, right? Barnabas is the son of encouragement. Uh, James and John, the sons of thunder. We get little hints about what they were kind of like in personality. Paul, it, it's kind of hard to know what it would have been like to hang out with Paul and interact with him um, personally, but we get a little glimpse there. I mean, he reminds them that he was truly emotionally affectionate and that it was a genuine thing. He wasn't putting on a show. And more importantly, he invites them to think back and consider how his life matched the very gospel that he preached. They matched together. Uh, they fit one with another. And his life was defined by humility and service to the Lord. And I think that's an important note in his choice of words here. What Paul did at its core, was not for the human community. That wasn't his philosophy. It wasn't for the cause of justice. That wasn't necessarily his philosophy. What, he lived his life in service to the God of heaven, right? He said, the Lord is my master. I serve him. Whatever he wants me to do, I will do. But that was the driving force. That was the core. That was his philosophy is that I serve God. Now, our God is a God of community, and he is a God who loves justice and compassion and all of those sorts of things. But there is a, a slight difference. 
If we say, okay, the purpose of the church is to accomplish what we might call social justice, rather than the purpose of the church is to be led by God and to serve him as he sees fit, we're gonna run into some issues eventually. Because sometimes Christians get their own ideas about how to bring about what we think is justice, or we get our own ideas about what would be the best form of compassion for our community and those sorts of things. And then we slap the name of Jesus on it, and he says, yeah, that wasn't really my idea at all. You wrote that speech. I didn't write that speech. And so our goal, our purpose is to serve the Lord as a master. Our duty in this life is to serve the Lord. Now, as master, he will send us to minister to others, to be a light in a dark world, to um, further his goals of love and justice and compassion and peace and all of those things. But we want to let everything we do be done unto him. There are a lot of tears in these verses. It shows us that Paul wasn't just a traveling speaker or performer. Uh, He had a real connection to these people. And God wants us to connect with Christians this way. We can't build a personal relationship with every Christian in Hanford or every Christian we meet, but we are to be knit together with some local fellowship of believers. The local church is uh, not only important, it's essential. It's essential for communities. It's essential for you and I. And God says we have to be connected to actual people so that we are knit together, supporting one another, building one another up, bearing each other's burdens, sharpening each other, all of these other things. And so that we're not just all sort of free floating out in the sea of Christianity, but that we're actually connected together. Now let's pause to consider how amazing it is to see that all the hate that Paul, who had once been Saul of Tarsus, all the hate he had for Christians earlier in his life has been completely washed away and replaced with God's love. I mean, it is an amazing thing what God can do in the heart of a human being. Not that long ago, Paul had been a man who wanted every Christian destroyed, every one, and he made that his life's goal. What can I do to wipe out a few Christians today? When he woke up, that's what he wanted to do. He was breathing destruction for the church, we were told. What do we see now? He risked his own life day in and day out to make more Christians and then to serve them. And so that's an amazing thing. What, what God's love can do, what God's transformation can do in a life. But this sort of brotherly love, this sort of transformation is not just a Paul thing. We each have a duty to cultivate and live out this sort of love for God's people and for the world around us. Here are a couple of references. A few from Paul, one from Peter, one from the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, do everything in love. That's a command. Well, what things? Do everything in love, Okay. Colossians 3.14, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10.12, hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. And so we see some themes developing here. Part of the way that the gospel transforms us is by washing hate out of our hearts and replacing it with love. Love that forgives, love that covers over, love that sees people the way God sees them, whether they are our enemies or not. Listen, there are things that make us angry in the world, and there are people, if we were honest, we would say, I would like that person gone. I would just like that person removed. I'm not saying I want to remove them, but it would be, if you're saying I had the option and they could be removed, sure, I would be happier. 
But that's not the love of Christ, right? The love of Christ compels us into the kind of caring compassion that took Jesus to the cross for your sin and my sin. And now the Lord says, okay, and now, above all, put on that love and go interact with the world and the people around you. Verse 20 says, you know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. We see here that Paul wasn't doing what he did in order to be popular or receive the favor of man. He, Paul was never gonna win a popularity contest, not in the Gentile world, not in Jerusalem. Uh, he just, he, he definitely did not win the popular vote, right? And so, uh, but he, despite the fact that he was no politician, which was a very good thing, even though he was above all of that, we do see he was deeply devoted to people. He wasn't one of these people who, he wasn't just some sort of um, uh, a guy in an office like I'm writing out manifestos and, and, and just kind of sending them out for and everybody needs to agree with him. He's deeply devoted to people and he was devoted to fortifying them through the teaching of the word of God. When the Bible is taught, the goal should be that people are convicted of sin and are shown how to be strong in the Lord whether that's for salvation or sanctification. So if you're not a Christian, the goal of, of someone teaching the word of God hopefully is to reveal that you're a sinner in need of salvation and that, uh, that the only way for you to be saved from an eternity in hell is by uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? If you are a Christian, the goal of the teaching of God's word is, is to build you up, sanctification, which is that day-by-day -day process of becoming more like Jesus. God says this is the process that he's working in your life as a Christian. God's word is not meant to bully. It does make demands on us, and it reveals that we are sinners and that we have a lot of work to do to become more like Jesus, but it does so so that we can realize why and how Jesus came to save us from our sin, all the things he has done for us, how he equips us, how he leads us, how he is with us, how we're yoked together with him. When Paul taught God's word, people weren't depleted, they were enriched by the truth. And even though he was telling them the straight truth, he says, hey, I didn't hold anything back to make you feel good. He was giving them the direct truth, but they were enriched and built up. Verse 21 says, I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Faith without repentance is not genuine. In the movies, they gotta use movie money. Sometimes in movies, you'll see you know, bank robbers have all this money. Where do they get that? It's movie money. Now, there are two kinds of movie money, I've discovered, and uh, the Treasury Department gets a little touchy about it. Uh, there was one movie that the, mo the, the money was too realistic and the, the, the studio kind of got in trouble from uh, the Treasury Department. But, but nowadays, in modern movie making, they have two kinds of movie money depending on how close the shot is gonna be and how realistic the money needs to look. One of them is very close to real money on the front, really close, but on the back, it's completely blank. It's just a white sheet of paper. And so obviously, it's not genuine. One side can seem as real as can be, but it has no value, right? As soon as you flip it over, that's not real. That's completely fake. And the same is true of repentance and faith. Ray Steadman, a great pastor, is home with the Lord now, has a good thought about repentance and how it is a duty we carry out, not just once when we become a Christian, when we're born again, but something that we carry out continually as we walk with God. 
Pastor Ray says this, to repent means to stop thinking and acting and living the way you have been. Instead, step out in faith, trusting the living Lord who is in you to operate through you and venture out, move out. The Christian life is intended to be exciting, compelling, always interesting, always different, always lived on the verge of adventure and danger. That is why it must be characterized also by faith. So you see, there are two basic steps and you must take them over and over again. The way you begin the Christian life is to repent and believe, and that also constitutes your walk through the Christian life. Now, certain jobs, some of you probably are in them, have ongoing fitness requirements or qualifications that have to be kept up. I think the Marine Corps has two a year, right? You have to pass certain requirements and fitness things all the time in order to, to say, okay, you can still do this job. And as believers, we have a duty to continue in repentance and faith. Not that, well, I repented one time of my sins long ago, and now I kind of go my own way, and God's cool with it. You know, Paul would expound this in the book of Romans and say, hey, that's not how we live. Do we sin that grace should abound? Of course not. God forbid we do that. And so repentance and faith, you know, we had the big one the first time we were saved, you know, the first time when we were saved, and now we continue walking in repentance and faith day by day. Verse 22 says, and now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. It was humbling to see what Paul wrote here and then wonder when I last heard from the Holy Spirit. Uh, Have we interacted with him lately? We never want our relationship with him to be like one of those old friends that if someone asks you about him, they say, oh man, I haven't heard from that guy in forever. I have that every now and then. Hey, have you talked to this person from college? I'm like, yeah, last time I talked to him was in college, sorry. You know, but that's not how we want our relationship with the Holy Spirit to be. Now, Paul knew that he was headed for trouble. The Spirit was warning him. But the Spirit wasn't warning him in order to stop him or forbid him from going. Rather, he was doing so to prepare him for what was coming ahead. As believers, we have a duty to face the unknown and to accept the fact that sometimes suffering is part of the package. In fact, Jesus guarantees it. We live a very privileged and a very blessed existence as Christians in the modern West, right? But our experience is Uh, the exception to what Christians have experienced all around the world for 2,000 years. And as we've seen, uh, our privilege and our uh, freedom have perhaps been starting to erode away a little bit. And so we're still not experiencing open persecution. Some churches are. They're being told, hey, if you meet, like the government's coming against you, we're going to fine you. One of the, the Calvary Chapel in San Jose, I think their fine is up to $350,000, something like that, for meeting together to worship God, right? But sometimes, you know, suffering is part of the package. Subscription boxes are all the rage right now, right? Blue Apron, KiwiCo, Bespoke Post. You don't always know what's going to come in the box, but it's curated just for you, right? It's curated for you. Hey, this will be good for you. And so in the spiritual life, in some sense, it's not all that different. Okay, what's in the box today? Okay, there's some encouragement and some new wisdom. Oh, I see we've got some suffering in here too. Okay, all right, let's, let's try this on. As one commentator wrote, we should not shrink from danger or from death. Duty is to be done at all hazards. It is ours to follow the directions of God 
results we may safely and confidently leave with him. Paul was at peace despite what was coming ahead because he knew that since he was walking with God, it really didn't matter what he met on the road, right? It didn't really matter. And Paul met a lot of things on the road and he took a lot of roads. And, but at this point, he was like, yeah, it doesn't really matter if I meet a friend or a foe, if I meet a meal or a monster, because he knew that his savior and his friend, Jesus Christ, was with him and he could be trusted to keep Paul in his loving care. And the same is true of us as well. It was when Peter looked at the wind and the waves that he began to sink, sink into the water, right? And so if we're walking with the Lord, it doesn't mean the road is always going to be pleasant, but it doesn't doesn't really matter what we're facing because after all, to live is Christ and to die is gain, Paul would say himself. Verse 24, I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Paul really wanted to finish his race. He wanted to finish it well, but, uh, and he didn't necessarily want to finish early or anything, but he was looking forward to the end. And he was going to live, I, you know, they think about 10 more years after this point. But by this point, you know, he had already had his vision of heaven that we read about in the book of 2 Corinthians. So we could sort of sympathize. If you had been in the spirit in heaven and seen, you know, really what was on the other side, I'm, I'm guessing it'd be kind of a drag to come back to a place with no running water and no electricity and that kind of stuff. You know, not to me, I mean, it'd be a drag for us too, but imagine first century, (laughs) first century Roman empire compared to you walked the streets of gold for, uh, you know, a, a small amount of time. And so we sympathize with him, but we see that as Paul headed toward that finish line, he wanted to play out every last second. Now I'm not a big football fan. I'm not really a sports fan at all. But I'll tell you one of my pet peeves about football. I understand it's part of the rules. I understand. I really hate, I really hate that it, all those games that end with mm, and everybody walks off while the clock is running, right? Don't you hate that? Soccer's like the antithesis of this. The clock runs out and they're like, we're still playing. And the referee's like, okay, five more minutes, right? And they, they just play on. And it, eventually at some point that no one really knows, the ref blows that whistle. But you got to believe, none of those soccer players are walking off the field, right? Because you score like one goal per nine hours. And so so you are running the whole time and you are sprinting the whole time because that's going to make the difference maybe. And you don't know when the whistle is going to blow, right? So soccer, football over football is all I'm saying. I'm sorry. I still love all you football fans, American football. Anyway, where are we? Oh no, I'm so lost now. (laughs) He really wanted to finish his race and he wanted to play out every last second. Now that doesn't mean we can never stop doing something that we're doing right now for the Lord. Some ministry you're involved in or, or, or some opportunity God is giving you, it doesn't mean, well, I have to do this for the rest of my life. We talk about how there's no retiring from serving God. That doesn't mean that things don't change in how you serve God. Things were about to change really dramatically for Paul for quite some time. He was no longer going to be a guy traveling the world planting churches. For years, he was going to be a dude that was imprisoned for Christ and tied to a soldier, writing letters and those sorts of things. And so things were going to change for sure. 
but even when life changed, Paul's purpose was to keep running his race. His purpose and his desire to serve God didn't change with the terrain of his life, if that makes sense. Whether he was on a level sprint or whether he was on a slow, rocky climb, he kept going. Verse 25, and now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Paul reveals here, Paul Revere, I almost said, Paul reveals here that we have a duty to the people around us to bring them the gospel. Many of you have no doubt been in a safety training and heard the poem, I Chose to Look the Other Way by Don Morell. Who's heard this poem? I know some of you, God bless you, I see that hand. You should look it up, it's a poignant one, it's kind of a sad story. He was this safety guy and he, was, he saw that this, this guy in a factory or whatever was doing something that eh, wasn't really safe, but he didn't say anything about it and that dude ended up dead. And so he wrote this poem that is used in all of these safety seminars now called I Chose to Look the Other Way. Let me read to you the opening, <laughs> the opening stanza. I could have saved a life that day, but I chose to look the other way. It wasn't that I didn't care. I had the time and I was there. And it just kind of goes through talking about, but I just, I kind of just let it slide. And because of that, my buddy died. And so that's me. That's not Don. So don't blame that on Don. <laughs> So I don't want us to feel condemned that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but we should be reminded that we do have a commission and a command to go and preach to those who are lost. And Paul said, man, I, had a, I have a duty. You know, and we see that in Ezekiel as well, that, hey, a watcher on the wall has a responsibility to go and, and share that message. And so individually and as a church like Paul, we want to keep in mind as we share the word of God to keep in mind the whole plan of God is what he said. God's God's plan for a person or a family or for all mankind is more than just the five popular topics that stock Christian bookshelves. Marriage, parenting, finances, those sort of self-helps that are constantly churned again and again. The same, you know, four-week series that sometimes gets rehashed over and over again in, in sort of mainstream churches. We just, four weeks on marriage, four weeks on parenting, four weeks on finances, four weeks on this, and it just returns. But God's plan is more than that. He has a whole plan of God. He has a comprehensive and involved plan spanning from creation to consummation, and it's all knit together, covering all aspects of life in all places, in all generations. So we want to be aware of God's plan and learning more about that. And we can be by systematically reading the Bible ourselves and studying the whole of the Bible. Paul believed it was his duty to be well-versed in the plan of God, and we do too. Verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with tears. So now he is giving the watch over to these spiritual shipmates. It wasn't that he was tired of helping them, far from it, but the Lord was leading him on and so he had to lay the care of this church down for others to take up as their duty, as their time now 
to carry uh, this, this weight. It would have been quite a loss in one sense to have Paul say, okay, this is it. I'm headed out. You're sort of on your own. Of course, they weren't on their own. But then also to be told, and by the way, you have some very real threats that are going to come against your church even from within. You know, he's giving them this prophecy here. But Paul was telling them and had showed them that despite those things, despite the fact that he was leaving, planning on never seeing them again, despite that these dangers were coming, he had shown them and was teaching them how to equip themselves for the job ahead. What a great thing that God empowers us to continue the work of the church in an unbroken chain of growth from that time on until now. You know, I mean, we have all that we need. We may think, man, I wish the Apostle Paul, you know, we could hear him teach or I wish, you know, the things that were happening in Acts. We have all that we need in order to live a continually growing life as individual Christians and as a church. Now, part of their job, these Ephesians, was going to be resisting these wolves he talked about. Toward that end, Paul told them to stay alert, not paranoid, but watchful. There's a difference between the two. And watchfulness is part of being on duty, paying attention and using our minds and keeping a lookout. Verse 32, and now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way, I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So we've got a duty to love and be alert and also we see to walk in grace. Grace is the way. It's able to build and repair and fortify. Though wolves would be doing their thing, we know there were still grace-filled, faithful men there, men like Timothy and others. We see in Paul's example that we also have a duty to be content. Paul had laid hold of contentment, both in blessing and in severe need. We can lay hold of it too because we have the same spirit within us. In Hebrews 13, we're commanded, keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. Along with that, we see Paul saw it as his duty to provide for others who needed it. We would flesh this out to mean that those who could not provide for themselves. He told the Thessalonian believers, he's like, hey, some of you are, so you got some loafers there that could be working and just don't and are mooching off people. Tell them if they don't work, they don't eat, right? But for people who couldn't provide for themselves, for example, like Timothy, we know he had many infirmities, we're told. And so Paul said, yeah, I have a duty to provide for those who can't provide for themselves. He may have had long periods of time where he had to support Uh, Timothy or some of these other people. Today, we as Christians have many wonderful ways to provide for those who have no provision, both near and far. And it is our duty to allow the Spirit to lead us into which of those he would like us to involve ourselves in if we're able. Verse 36, after he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. After we tore ourselves away from them, we set sail straight for Kos, next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. It's a sad farewell, and as most of us know, this life has far too many sad farewells. But though we may have to part ways with those Christians who are dearest to us in life, we can know that we will be reunited with them again in heaven, where there will be no more hurt, no more wolves, no more danger, only joy forevermore together with our Lord. God has given us so much, 
And part of what he's given us is duty. Duty to him and then toward others. Duty to love, to preach, to give, to watch, to face the unknown, to obey, to repent, to run our race. These aren't things we have to do in order to earn salvation or to keep God happy with us. That's not it. But they are part of the transformation the Lord is accomplishing in us and part of the wonderful kingdom work he has sent us out to be a part of. We have what we need to do these things. Now we get to live them.